Hello everyone. It is officially October, which means spooky season is here. I hope you all are as excited as I am. What better way than relaxing and listening to this week's stories to kick off the best time of the year? Let us begin and drift further into Mr. Creep's mind. I saw the Michigan Dogman. It's real. Written by Leo of Alexandria. The Great Lakes State is known for many things. I'm sure the number one answer for many non-resident would be the auto industry, which of course would be 100% accurate. Henry Ford didn't invent the car, but he made up the assembly system we all know today, and I'm guessing just about every factory in the world uses it. I'm sure he didn't foresee robots replacing people in the line, but that's another story for another day. Let me say that I am indeed a lifelong Michigander. I have lived in both of our beautiful peninsulas. If anyone doesn't know, Michigan is two separate pieces of land connected by the Mackinac Bridge. Classified as a peninsula, a body of land surrounded on at least three sides by water. Every resident of Michigan is no less than three miles away from some type of water whether it be a pond, a stream, a creek, a river, a lake, etc. Michigan should be known for water just as much as the auto industry. The name of the state itself means Big Water from the Ojibwa tribe. I would also like to make the rest of the world know that we should be the unofficial potato chip capital of the world. Try to get your hands on better made chips. I'll just leave that there. You know about the auto industry, you know about the Motor City, and you know there's a ton of water in this state. But what you might not know is that there are a plethora of scary, creepy, and unexplained myths and legends based in Michigan. During my time in the Upper Peninsula, I lived in the middle of the woods. Some people may like the exclusion to city life. Some may like the quiet. That's all great. But man, I can't explain how unsettling that silence is some nights. I've heard a lot of bumps in the night up there. I always explained it away as being wild animals. It's hard to argue. You'd have a better chance of running into deer, bears, and even badgers on your way home than seeing an actual person. Wolves have been thriving up north too, and in the lower peninsula. This is where the story is going. I'm going to tell you about my encounter of the Dogman of Michigan, a myth going back to the 1800s in Michigan, in Wexford County, which is in the upper part of the Lower Peninsula. The creature has been described as being over 7 feet tall with piercing blue eyes. The creature is also described as wolf or dog-like, with the torso of a man. The creature has been seen standing on its hind legs. And the most horrifying feature is the Wolfman's Howl, which has been described as a human-like scream. It's unsettling to say the least. I bet if you looked around the internet, you would find that every state has some type of legend like this. After all, the horror world loves the werewolf story. It's been in pop culture for almost 100 years. But the Dogman of Michigan, it's not just a story, and it doesn't match any Hollywood script. The Dogman is no Teen Wolf, I can assure you. 
The other part of this legend is that the Dogman only comes out in 10 year cycles. More specifically, years that end with 7. While doing my research, I thought this was just one of those details to make the story more fantastical. Like how Stephen King's It character comes back to feed every 27 years. Just an arbitrary number thrown in by some writer. But I had to stop when I thought back to seeing the creature. Sure enough, it was 1997, and I was about 14 years old. As mentioned, the legend most cryptid files are familiar with puts the Dogman of Michigan in the Lower Peninsula. My experience happened in the Upper, the UP as it's affectionately known. And before any genius in the comments says that I probably just saw a wolf or a feral dog, and let me stop you right there, Professor. You're going to read this whole story and say it anyway, but let me tell you, I have seen a handful of actual wolves in my life. Not many people have the privilege in real life when you think about it. They are coming dangerously close to being endangered in some areas, and where they do thrive are usually in real rural spots, and I lived in one of those areas. One moment stands out to me, walking home on the dirt road, I saw it. I must have been zoning out, just wanting to lay down after walking miles home from school. Before I knew it, I was maybe 30 feet from a wolf that I would say was almost 100 pounds. I know some dogs can get to that size, but believe me, you would not mistake a wolf like this for a dog. I'm moving on. I'll say that growing up in the woods was like waiting for something disturbing to happen. It would be unnaturally quiet for days or weeks at a time. And then something would happen that not only caused the goosebumps, but maybe made you question what is really happening in your reality. One night while browsing the internet for one of the first times, I was maybe around 12, I saw and heard a car screech to a halt on the county road outside of our living room sliding door. Being that any kind of traffic was rare, this was alarming, especially at night. What I saw next is so burned into my memory. Two men jumped out. One threw a shovel at the other, seemingly forcing him to dig. The man with the shovel now in his hands looked at the apparent driver, with pleading sorrow in his eyes. I could see his facial expressions from where I was. Maybe I over-exaggerated them in my young mind, but I now know he was panicked. He was saying, Please don't make me do this, without opening his mouth. The man who threw him the shovel went to the back of the truck, grabbing what looked like some kind of cloth or burlap sack. I swear to this day, it looked like it was the perfect size to hold a human head. The inferior man dug a quick, shallow grave. The alpha male threw the sack into the hole and forced his shovel man to bury it. Frozen in fear, I slowly regained my composure and called it a night. Quietly going to bed upstairs, like the now speeding away men would hear me move and come back to take me out as well. The next day, I cautiously made my way to where they buried their little secret. Nothing. Well, not nothing. There was nothing in the grave. But there were little footprints walking into the direction of the tree line, on our eastern property line. In the lead up to seeing the dogman, a friend of mine and I were sleeping on our trampoline overnight. It was always a blast. 
Being that there wasn't a whole lot to do up in the UP, and the internet wasn't that much of an entertainment device at the time, which sounds ludicrous today. The trampoline was like the center of some family's homes back in the 90s. We would try to stay up all night, watching the pitch black sky, and counting the quadrillions of stars in the sky. We saw never-ending shooting stars. My buddy would name them after current day NASCAR drivers. Number two was Rusty Wallace, three Dale of course, and number 24 Jeff Gordon, you get it. Neither one of us had a watch on, but when I heard a couple of five gallon buckets slam around near the chip pile, I guessed it was maybe 4am. I based it on the constellations and the North Star. I was frozen in fear as my big German Shepherd Mal left his doghouse in a fury, barking and chasing off whatever made the ruckus near where my friend and I were sleeping. My buddy never budged. I just tried to ignore what happened and I forced myself back to sleep. It was probably an animal, no big deal. Waking up when the sun mercifully appeared, I sleepily eyed at the immediate area of the trampoline. What I saw chilled me beyond words. What looked like human footprints were seen coming to where my friend and I were laying, and then heading to where the few five-gallon buckets were strewn about 15 feet away. To be clear, it wasn't bare footprints. They looked like boots, and not my dad's. These were well above a size 13 or 14. I had bigger feet than my dad at that time, and I was a size 11 at about age 13. The thought of some creep walking towards us at night, it absolutely terrified me. Thank God for a dog. He got extra treats that day and I never told my buddy about what actually happened. That was a child's play compared to what happened when I saw the infamous Dogman of Michigan. I had no idea at the time what I was dealing with. My young brain wouldn't have been able to comprehend it anyway. It's still hard to comprehend it, even as an adult. As a kid, I would venture to the woods often, sometimes with my younger brothers, sometimes with my friends, or sometimes just by myself. There's always an air of mystery when you're out in the middle of nowhere. The weirdest parts of the woods where I live are these abandoned little structures, and the best that I could come up with is that these were places for hunters or farmers. I never dared to go into these one-room, four-walled structures. They had serial killer vibes all over them. One night when I was out way too late was when I ran into the Wolfman. The sun had started to dip far too low below the trees. You can become much too disoriented quickly when the natural light was fading. I usually didn't have a flashlight with me, as I never stayed out past dark. And back then, we didn't have cell phones. Hearing howling was not uncommon at all. Most time, it could be easily attributed to a pack of coyotes. They would hunt sick animals or younger deer that strayed from their herd. But the howl that I heard was not from a simple coyote. This was a deep, man-like scream that pierced my ears. When I regained my composure, I saw that I was way too close to one of those freaky sheds in the woods. Slowly, I started to back away, in the direction that I hoped was my home. A loud crash echoed throughout the woods, frozen again like I was just months earlier laying on the trampoline. 
I saw a wide-eyed man fall out of the doorway. Even in the darkness, I could see the whites of his terrified eyes looking directly at me. He fell to the ground before locking his gaze onto me. He shakily reached an arm out towards me. I did nothing. I couldn't move. Before I knew what was happening, a beast burst through the door after this poor soul. This thing was standing on two legs. It had to have been over seven feet tall. It was covered in gray fur. Its eyes were as yellow as the corn that we had on a Thanksgiving dinner. In the blink of an eye, it clamped its ivory fangs into the man, dragging him back into the shack. Even though it was just past dusk, I could see shiny dark red erupt from his throat. All I can remember thinking was, Run. In what felt like hours, I finally exploded out from the woods. With my house now in view, I fell to the ground. Attempting to catch my breath, I cautiously looked back toward the trees. Two big, yellow eyes glowed. I couldn't say for sure, but they looked like they were smiling. Keeping each other's glare for a moment, they slowly disappeared out into the darkness. Finally making it home, my parents asked where I had been. I just told them I was walking around the edge of the woods. It was really all that I could come up with at the time. It didn't matter though. My dad went back to reading The Farmer's Almanac. And my mom continued to watch Wheel of the Fortune and then Jeopardy. They were both ignorant to the fact that I had just experienced the legend of the Dogman. I went to my room without saying anything else. The next day, I stared out into the woods. I imagined the man-like beast, tearing apart that poor man, limb from limb, taking its time and ripping a chunk out of his neck, disassembling and doing horrible things until nearly nothing resembled a human remained. The dogman broke the forest, running towards me on all fours, it pounced, pinning me to the ground. It smelled like a dog, maybe rabid. It opened its impossibly big maw, drooling hot saliva onto my face. The last thing I saw was red, as it slowly consumed me and blinded my eyes. Waking up, gasping for air like I had been drowning, I shot up in my bed. I was drenched in sweat. Taking in my surroundings, I was more than relieved to see that I was in my bedroom. My Tyra Banks poster was facing me. My poster of Frank Thomas, the big hurt, was to my left. A huge breath escaped my lungs. My dad walked by my open door. You okay, buddy? You went right to bed as soon as you came home last night. I made up some kind of just being tired kind of excuse. But I knew I would always keep this experience of meeting the Michigan Dogman to myself. Well, until now. 
If you are in the woods of northern Michigan, please be aware there are more than deer, bear, wolves, and dogs out there. There is an alien crash site in the forest. I've been sent to investigate. Written by Doomed Geek. When I opened the file, everything changed. After the most intense period of my life, my training was over and I was about to start my first case. I glanced around the office. All the other agents were on laptops here consulting on their phones. I looked down at the Manila folder on my desk. There was one word on its cover here. Classified. I had been told in my briefing that morning when it was given to me that it had not been digitized. It's just too far down the food chain, my supervisor had added, which is why it had been given to me, I knew. I needed to prove myself before I was given responsibility for higher profile assignments. I lifted the cover of the file. The text was faded, typed, double-spaced. I began to read. September 9th, 1955. The fire had been burning for six days. I was still 15 miles away and pulled up at the side of the road checking the map when I noticed tiny dark specks floating in the air. Wondering what they could be, I held out the palm of my hand and let a few settle. I felt sharp pains in my skin and realized that this was debris from the blaze, reduced almost to nothing but still burning hot. It was a fine, mild day, and I had the window of the car rolled down. A few more miles along the road, I could taste as much as smell of the smoke, just before I saw the darkening of the sky. Then I heard the crackle of the flames, and by the time I saw the first of the emergency vehicles, I could feel the unnatural heat on the side of my face. I rolled up the window, parked, and went to find someone to report to. This was a courtesy. I was following protocol and shared only the prepared legend with the fire marshal, who I had learned had been tasked with leading the effort to bring the fire under control. In the hours before the fire took hold, there had been a number of reports of a shooting star coming to ground in this vast forest. The nearest centers of population were over 150 miles away, and there was believed to be no loss of life or concern for damage to property. A statement had been issued by the local governor to this effect, which went on to say it was believed to be a meteorite that had crashed to Earth. A very rare occurrence and no more were expected. In short, watch the game later, enjoy your TV dinners and do not worry, we got this. I explained my presence to the fire marshal by telling him, in strictest confidence, that the meteorite was a cover story and that it was in fact a Russian surveillance satellite which had crashed, and I was there to supervise its safe recovery. I am pleased to note that he seemed to take this in stride, though I would not be providing the full picture if I did not add that I was clearly low down on his order of priorities. 
and the density of the trees and the ferocity of the flames had led him to make the decision to create a firebreak around the edges of the blaze. Any flames that traversed this would be tackled by crews on the ground, based in the newly created space. It was a mammoth task, requiring hundreds of men. I was reduced to an observer for the next 48 hours. There was nothing I could do to expedite my assigned mission. To locate the UFO, which had been tracked entering national airspace, shortly before the shooting star reports began to come in. The firebreak constructed, I had hitched a ride with the fire marshal as he inspected and encouraged his troops. We pulled up at regular intervals so we could talk, check equipment, pat already exhausted looking men in the back, and tell them that they were heroes. It was on one of these stops that I heard a scream come from deep inside the forest, from the direction of the heart of the fire. It stopped us all in our tracks. We turned as one and looked into the flames. No one suggested trying to rescue whatever it was that had cried out. It was a miracle anything had survived in there so long, and death was by now the only outcome. I kept to myself my belief that the cry had not sounded human or like any animal native to that region which I knew of. To raise this would have deviated from my mission parameters. Soon, the sound of fire and of the men and equipment battling to hold it back were once more all that could be heard. The coffee that I had collected on the way from the briefing back to my desk had gone cold, but I sipped at it anyway. Around me, the other agents got on with their work. I had forgotten they were even there until I looked up. I stretched and turned to a new page. October 3rd, 1955. The fire was gone. This was its afterimage. The gray smoke that still rose from the darkened earth. The blackened, burnt trees whose damaged branches looked like the withered fingers of rotting corpses. I walked through this nightmarish environment weeks after the fire itself had burnt itself out. The break had proved effective and the fire had been left with nothing to consume. The others had all left. I traveled alone towards the center of where the blaze had been, its starting point, the landing place. I kept to as straight a line as possible on the train. The bones and small complete skeletons of animals lay everywhere on the forest floor. The stench of burnt matter was all-pervading, and my eyes and nostrils and the back of my throat stung. I was concerned that I would not be able to go on, but if I turned back, that meant a further delay in completing my mission. I continued. My perseverance was rewarded around an hour later. I began to see trees that were tilting to one side. This became more severe as I walked on. And before long, a swath of leaning and toppled trees appeared in front of me. This was a separate trauma to the damage caused by the fire. I picked up my pace. I was eager to see. I clambered over fallen trees, felt the stinging touch of branches that remained and still smoldered as they brushed against me. Until I reached a clearing, what I now knew to be not the landing place but the crash site. 
The craft had been cylindrical and they to have been snapped almost in half by the impact. Only silvery threads that were metallic in appearance connected the two sections. I wondered if they were an equivalent to cables. I was considering entering one of the sections when I saw the body. It lay partially hidden under the craft. It was around four feet long and slim with arms and legs in proportions as might have been seen on a human child. Its hands were cruder than a child's, with two thick curving fingers in each hand. Its eyes were white orbs that dominated its face. There was no nose, mouth, or ears that I could discern. There were a series of small slits fanning out from a point just below the center of its eyes until they covered the lower part of the face. They looked to me as if they had been cut into these skin-like primitive tribal markings, though no coloring distinguished them that I could see. The outer layer of body, like its surroundings, had taken on an ashy hue because of the fire, and it could have been that any pigmentation had been lost. I paused then, told myself to stop imprinting human images onto this alien being. I most likely had no points of reference for what I was seeing here. I moved around the clearing with as calm a mind as I could summon. There were no more bodies. I decided to walk around the perimeter of the crash site to see if there were any more bodies further out, and then work my way inwards and complete my initial examination by then entering the craft. I had been pacing around for around 20 minutes when I found them. I counted eight alien bodies that had been laid out in a line on the forest floor. They were partially buried with their eyes and the marking on their faces visible. I dug into the earth with my fingers at a number of points around the bodies to see if they had been buried with any possessions, but I found nothing. My supposition is that there had been one survivor from the crew and that they had buried the dead as best they could before they too succumbed whether from injuries sustained in the initial crash, the effects of the fire or smoke, or from natural conditions on the Earth's surface which could have proved fatal to them. Their last act, I believe, was to try and return any sanctuary offered by the interior of the craft. It was by this stage growing dark and I had no means of continuing my exploration, so I began the track back to my base a mouse-infested motel in which I had already spent many long, uncomfortable nights trying to sleep. Here, the narrative ended with a short note that looked to have been typed on a different machine. Seemed to be secured in further investigation and recovery of objects to be made when resources allow. Agent reassigned. A red date stamp placed this in early October in 1955, and an illegible signature sealed the deal. The agency is at the end of the day a bureaucracy funded by the government and run by pencil pushers. There is always new crises, pressures to focus in dozens of different directions. It's an impossible ask. It looked to me as if I closed the file that the crash site had fallen through the cracks in the system. It had resurfaced because of two calls to a sheriff's office that sent up red flags in our countrywide covert monitoring system. I logged into my laptop and clicked on the links my supervisor's executive assistant had sent me. Both were hurried and breathless. Neither provided their name as the operator requested. 
The sound quality was poor. We had lost track of time and set up camp in the old woods in a clearing that we found just before it grew dark. We were woken in the night by the sound of movement outside. Something then started to claw the fabric of the tent. Neither of us were armed, so we waited and it grew quiet again. And whatever it was, it seemed to go away. In the morning, we couldn't see any wild animals, but we did find what looked to be the wreckage of a plane or maybe a big helicopter like in the movies. The reason that I'm calling you is that there were bones by the wreckage. They don't look like animal bones to me. This was the recording of the first caller, a man. The second was a woman. I've seen a monster. It was Bigfoot, only bigger and it had no feet. I was in the woods with my friend Dwayne because I like him, but he has issues with PTSD so he can't cope with regular holidays. I had went out by myself to relieve myself when I saw it. It was huge and filthy and it was crawling with bugs and it was watching me. I screamed and Dwayne came running, only with his gun jammed so he couldn't shoot at it. You have to do something. In the briefing, my supervisor had told me to go to these sites and reevaluate what was actually there and provide costings for its removal if that was deemed necessary to prevent public disorder. It was said in such a matter-of-fact way that I had no qualms about my safety, as I signed out a four-wheeler and set off on what would be a four-day-long drive. August 5th, 2021, 5.21am. I am recording my visit to the scene of the crash site on my phone for later transcribing. The day is already humid and I am now concerned I am unprepared as regards my clothing and equipment, as I follow in the footsteps of my fellow agent more than 60 years ago. I do not want to delay so I am pressing on. I have lost reception so I am relying on glimpses of the sun and its position through the canopy of the trees to keep heading in the right direction. There are no signs of the devastating fire. The forest is verdant and I am constantly catching sight of rustling undergrowth, hearing calls but I have yet to see anything. Even though the human presence is incredibly rare here, the wildlife is clearly shy of us. Now that I am here, I can understand why there have on occasion been visitors. The day-to-day -day world in which we live, with its constant urgency in people and buildings pressing in on us, could not feel further away. I believe I'm about two hours away from the crash site, so I will turn off the recorder until I reach it. 8.30am It's taken me longer than I anticipated, and there was a period where I thought I'd become hopelessly lost, but I think I made it. There has been a good degree of new growth, but the remains of fallen trees are still clearly visible, and there is a patch of open land. Whether the intensity of the fire here means that the land is not recovered, or if there was some substance in the alien craft, fuel or such that has poisoned it, I do not know. I can see the craft, broken in two as described and as I walk towards it, I can see the first bones. I assume this is what is left of the alien corpse. First discovered, it is a whole skeleton, approximately four feet long. The skull is narrow and there are small, very sharp teeth still showing on the jaw. There is a spine and rather than a ribcage, there is a solid curving bone. 
The remainder of the structure resembles that of a human, though the hands and feet look simpler, with fewer, larger bones. I am here to analyze and report, not run away in conjecture, but I can't help but wonder what this creature would have moved like. Did it have a voice? Was it intelligent and was its perception greater than mine? All moot points at the moment, I had a job to do. Wait. I don't know if the noise was picked up by the recorder, but there was movement just beyond the far edge of the clearing. I appear to have company. I have been trained to deal with conflict in high-pressure situations, though I have yet to put this training into practice. I am not expecting to encounter Bigfoot. What is it, though? There, it moved again. I am going to approach with caution. The recorder won't be picking this up, but I can hear my heartbeat going ten to the dozen. Sure better than working nine to five, though. Sure better than working off my old man's farm. I... Holy crap. I can see it through a break in the foliage. I am 6'2", and it is at least twice my height. It is moving slow. Its feet look like the roots of trees. Exposed roots that are trailing, reaching across the ground beneath. Its fingers are of the same appearance. Its body. My eyes are acclimating to the situation. It seems to be covered with earth. The dark earth on which I stand. There is movement on it as well. It must be insects. It is crawling with them. Only there is nothing on its body. It is the naked earth skin of the thing itself that is moving. I should get closer and try and communicate with it. I'm scared though. Terrified. Concentrate. It is moving away from me. I have to follow. Dang it. It's heard me. It's turning. There are visions of below in medieval paintings populated with faces such as I'm seeing now. Inhuman faces twisted by forces that we cannot comprehend into something that is both hideous and tragic. Our eyes meet. I see recognition in the two dark orbs set into the rippling pulsing, obscenely animate matter that forms its face and its body. It has seen me and knows that I am here and it turns away from me, moves slowly away through the trees and the undergrowth, until it is lost to me. I stand and watch. I think I am going into shock. I have resigned from the agency. I cannot do the job anymore. Cannot see the future in which I sift through details to find cold reason. I walked away from the phone box outside the diner which I would used to deliver the news. It was the first building I came to after driving away from the forest. What happened there will never leave me. I'm haunted by it. Had something remained inside their bodies, strands and the aliens' genetic makeup that to ensure these beings could one day return. Had they been nourished by the rotting leaves which had fallen each autumn, and the bodies of the animals that had died since they were themselves were buried. Was that why they had been laid to rest in the way they were, so close to the surface? And had they bonded with the very fabric of the forest in which they had been buried? The dark earth renourished after the cleansing fire, the crawling, burrowing insects, the searching roots of the trees. To become the thing that I had seen, the creature of root and bug and restless earth, 
I had only questions as I began the long drive back to my home city, or I would go off-grid and try and regather my thoughts and find a way forward for my life. When I opened the file, everything changed forever. My dad is a doomsday prepper. He disappeared months ago. Written by Odd Directions. Dad shut himself inside his bunker at the beginning of 2020. He said the world was about to end and when we didn't believe him, he told us to wake up. It was raining that day. I remember focusing on the water hitting the window panes while my sister tried to change Dad's mind. I knew that it was no use. He was too stubborn to listen to anyone. Dad wanted us to join him, and when we told him no, he called us all brainwashed. He had purchased the land before it was born, only because of the dilapidated military facility that came with it. It was abandoned sometime in the 60s, I think. My sister was there from the beginning, even before Dad's obsession pushed Mom away. It's hard for me to imagine what he was like back then. Mom says that he was a gentleman, but they married young and a person can change a lot during those years. And so did Dad. All I remember from him during childhood are the weekends at the bunker, constantly renovating it and stockpiling it with everything he would need to survive down there. We couldn't stop him. He wasn't the best dad, not even a good one, but it was sad to see him go all the same. He was excited even though he thought that civilization was about to collapse. I guess that happens when you've spent your entire adult life preparing. We had to set up an old radio to keep in touch with him. He didn't trust cell phones. We didn't hear from him often, just about once a month, sometimes less. The last time that he radioed in, he said that he had found a hidden door. He was going to see where it went. That was three months ago. You think he's okay? My sister said. He wasn't in great health. I told him. We sat in the car on our way to check up on him, driving through the heat wave. His radio must have broken down, I said. Let's not assume the worst. But I felt worried too. There was something strange about that hidden door and his tone when he mentioned it. It didn't sit right with me, but maybe it was just the heat and the endless desert around us that played tricks on my mind. I couldn't really tell. It was dark when we arrived. Dad's truck stood where he had left it, beneath some tarp that blew in the chilly, sand-carrying wind. We turned on our flashlights and walked to the cliff above the bunker. The steel door was made to withstand a nuclear blast. Luckily, I only only spare key in existence. Before I used it, I banged on the door as hard as I could and I yelled for dad. I worried that he would mistake us for intruders and shoot us. If he was confused and if it was dark, it was a real possibility. I banged again and yelled at the top of my lungs. Dad, are you there? It's me, Josh. Evelyn is here as well. I don't think he can hear you. Evelyn said. I nodded. Dad, I'm going to open the door now. 
I was 17 the last time that I was here. Back then, it was some other conspiracy that he believed in that was going to be the end of civilization as we knew it. My sister put her hand on my wrist just as I was about to unlock the door. You know, she said, maybe we should just call the authorities after all and... No, I said. He'll fight them. I unlocked the heavy door. A rancid smell escaped the darkness inside. It was the odor of death. I recognized it from when Dad tried and ultimately failed to learn how to hunt and let a reindeer carcass rot on the property for weeks. My sister and I had already stopped visiting him by then. I didn't tell her what the smell reminded me of. She covered her nose with her shirt. We descended the spiral stairs. It creaked for each step that we took, almost as if it was about to fall apart. I tried the light switch at the bottom. The click echoed throughout the long corridor leading to the living area. Nothing happened. Hmm. I realized that the batteries which he had charged by the use of an old exercise bike were dead. That meant that he was most likely dead as well. The generator could be broken, I said. But maybe you should wait back here just in case, uh, you know. I pointed my flashlight in front of me. The light was too weak to reach the end of the corridor. On the way here, I had felt ready. I felt sad, the kind of empty sadness you feel after the death of a parent that was never any good. But I didn't feel worried. Now, on the other hand, while staring into the dark corridor that I used to run through as a kid, I was afraid. The fear reminded me of how my childhood night terrors used to start. They always crept up on me in the darkness, grew with the grotesque shadows on my bedroom ceiling. I'm not letting you go in there alone, Evelyn said. We stay together. We walked into the darkness. The foul smell intensified for every step we took, and so did my heartbeat. I was glad my sister didn't stay behind. The bunker seemed so much smaller than I had remembered it, much more cramped. The asymmetry between my memories and reality made everything feel off somehow, just as if the bunker was merely a model of the real thing, but it wasn't. I had just grown up. We entered the main chamber. It was overfilled with litter and clutter. Empty cans, both the food and beer kinds, lay scattered across the sticky floor. We had to take large steps not to step on any of the trash. That's weird. Evelyn pointed her flashlight at the small dining table. Look. My hair stood up on my neck before I even realized what she meant. The table was set for three people. I didn't say anything for a moment, trying to process what I was seeing. And just when I was about to speak, my sister interrupted me. Who the heck was here with him? We don't know, I began. I mean, he might have left the old plates on the table and... A sound of something falling to the ground came from one of the other rooms further into the bunker. I pointed my light in its direction, but I couldn't see what made it. Dad, I yelled. It's me, Josh. You there? No response. I'm afraid, Evelyn whispered. Something isn't right here. I only vaguely heard what you said. My focus was on something else. Something on the wall on the other end of the room. 
That's not supposed to be there. I slowly walked toward it. That must have been what he talked about over the radio. Dad had hacked away a layer of concrete for whatever reason and uncovered a rusty metal door behind it. It stood ajar. A lukewarm, musty breeze came out of it. My sister walked up to me as I carefully pried the door open with the back of my flashlight. I could feel my heart in my throat. I could hear my sister begging for us to leave, almost in tears. But I needed to know what was behind that door. It was imperative to understand what had happened here. I needed to know. I needed closure. What in heaven's name? Evelyn looked over my shoulder. Why is this here? Behind the door was a room about the size of a broom cupboard. It was unremarkable except for a circular hole in the middle of the floor. I shone my light into it, but I couldn't see the bottom. Just as I thought it was big enough for a person, my sister said, Do you think he fell? Drops of sweat from my forehead fell down the pit. I felt dizzy and stepped back, afraid that I would fall inside. My sister picked up a can filled with some rotten beans and threw it down the hole. And it clattered against the walls as it bounced from one side to another. The sound faded away until we couldn't hear it anymore. There was no indication that it touched down at the bottom. I stretched out my hand and held it above the opening. It's warm, I said. The air, I mean. Maybe he fell. Evelyn stepped back almost as if she were convinced. Can we please get out of here? She reached for my arm. We can return with the police. Please, Josh. It wasn't dark when Dad found this, I said. You would have seen the hole. Josh, please. Just give me a moment to think. I walked toward the hallway that led to the other rooms, desperately hoping to find him. For some reason, it was important for me to see him, to be able to leave without wondering. I needed to know that he was truly dead. I just want to. I stopped myself after I accidentally pointed the flashlight on the floor in the middle of the hallway, revealing a pair of feet. I think I found him. I ran up to the body. Wait. Evelyn yelled and reluctantly followed me to avoid being left alone. It wasn't dead. I screamed upon the realization. My mind couldn't comprehend what I had just seen. I spun around and tried to run away, completely acting on instinct, and I crashed into my sister. She grabbed me, kept me still, and as she looked behind me, down at the body on the floor, she began to cry while her hands trembled uncontrollably against my shoulders. Oh my god, she said. How, how is it possible? It's you. Let's get the heck out of here, I said. Move. There was nothing that could explain this. And the more that my mind tried to, moving in an endless loop doing so, the more the dread grew inside me. I only got a glimpse of the body before I panicked, but my sister was right. The half-rotten face was the same as mine, with a bullet hole in the middle of the forehead. We stumbled our way through the living room, tipping over chairs and kicking cans all over the place. And just as we were about to get out of the mess... A familiar voice echoed through the hallway that we had just escaped from. 
Josh. It was Dad. We both stopped in our tracks. Is, is that, that you, Josh? Josh? Dad? I yelled back. What the heck is going on here? Don't, Don't worry. worry. It sounded like he was at the other end of the bunker, possibly inside the storeroom. I, I killed, killed that son of a gun. gun. Put, Put a, a bullet, bullet right between his eyes. eyes. Come out from there, I yelled. We have to leave. It's not safe here. Silence. Something is wrong, Evelyn said. I don't think. Dad, I yelled. Come out. I can't move, Dad said. I'm stuck under a shelf. I'll need your help, son. I turned to my sister. Go back up. I'll get him out of there. We'll be right behind you, okay? Thank Josh, Evelyn begged. You think he's been stuck under a shelf for her? I should have listened. But even after what we had just seen, I just couldn't bring myself to even consider something as outlandish as what my sister was suggesting. It was simply too far-fetched. Too unbelievable to penetrate all my layers of presumptions about reality. It couldn't be. It just couldn't. Hence, I ran back to the hallway, yelling for my sister to get back up to the surface and to wait for us there. I'm coming, Dad. I only slowed down to carefully step over the body that bore my face. Perhaps I thought it was just a coincidence. A burglar that just happened to look like me. After all, the face had begun to rot. It wasn't obviously me. I felt stupid and I almost convinced myself that it was just my childhood fear of the dark coming back to life down here. And then... Just as I was about to walk past the small composting toilet that stood inside a small room at the end of the hallway, I stopped. Shivers spread across my entire body, paralyzing me. Dad sat on the toilet, his gun still hung from his trigger finger, with his remains splattered across the wall behind him. He had his journal in his lap, covered in blood. Josh! Dad yelled from the darkness. Help me. I was frozen in place, both by fear and confusion, unable to make any decisions. Come, Come on, Josh. Josh. Dad kept yelling. I, I need your help, help son. son. My mind was racing. There was no way of knowing who was who. When I heard Dad's voice yelling for help while watching his dead body, nothing but absolute terror reverberated inside me. I slowly reached for the journal in Dad's lap and I grabbed it hoping that it would shed some light on the situation. I was just about to open it when my sister screamed. I ran back this time, jumping over my doppelganger's body, and found her looking at something at the corner of the main chamber. I told you to, I said but changed my mind. Are you okay? What happened? It's, she cried. It's me. Crawled up in the corner was her naked dead body. Her head had been twisted in such a way that the neck had been broken. There's something seriously wicked going on here, I said. Dad shot himself a long time ago by the looks of it, and yet he keeps yelling for help. Let's get back to the car, now. We drove away from the bunker as fast as we could, leaving whatever was still alive down there yelling for help. My sister insisted on staying at my place for a few days and I didn't mind having her around. We had shared an experience that no one else could relate to, 
and we needed each other to overcome the trauma. It took a day for me to build up the courage to open Dad's journal. It began with his usual deranged conspiracy theories. I flipped past them, but at the end, he only made short notes. Found a hidden door. Deep pit. Possibly the remains of some old black project. Evelyn and Josh woke me up. A surprise visit. Didn't hear them enter. Strange. Had dinner with them. Something seems off. It isn't them. They tried to make me. God help me, it isn't them. I shot the one right between the eyes. Hiding in the bathroom now. This will probably be my last entry. God, forgive me. Chills went down my spine as I read the last entry on the blood-drenched page. I never got the other one. She's still out there somewhere. I only got one bullet left. I won't allow her to do that abhorrent thing to me. Forgive me. My sister has been cooking for hours. She just called for me from the kitchen. Josh, come here. I want to show you something. Does anyone else remember The Great Blackout of 2014? Written by Willow's Closet. Hi everyone, this might be a long shot, but I'm trying to figure out if there's anyone out there who remembers a major blackout in the middle of November 2014. It was a pretty big event at the time, but I've never met anyone who remembers it, or is willing to talk about it if they do. I still have no idea if the blackout was only in my city, or if it was nationwide. If I'm being honest with you... I suspect it was global. If you remember it, then this will all make sense to you. If you don't, then you're probably going to think that I'm crazy. Maybe I am. I'm hoping somebody out there can tell me I'm not. When a major event occurs that shatters our collective view of normalcy, and we process it by sharing our unique account of it with others, we ask each other about where we were on 9-11, our bond over our shared experience of fear and isolation in the early days of the pandemic. I have never had that opportunity to do that with this situation, so I'm going to try to do it now, if only because I'm worried about what might still be to come, and because I have nobody to talk with about that fear. The blackout happened on the evening of Thursday, November 13th, 2014. Back then, my ex and I lived close to her parents, and we would visit them pretty often to have dinner and watch TV. It was typically a pretty uneventful affair, and we were usually too burnt out from the workday to socialize much. We just watched our shows in silence, occasionally sharing amusement at a joke in a sitcom or debating a theory about a show's plot mystery. That's pretty much how this night was going too, until the lights went out. It must have happened sometime between 7.30 and 8, because we were watching Jeopardy when we lost power. It was weird, because there was no inclement weather, and it was actually perfectly clear outside. As our eyes adjusted, we could see these stars out the living room window, 
brighter than any of us had ever seen them before. We could also see some lights flashing in the distance. It was an eerie green light flashing near the horizon like lightning in a distant storm. I figured it was probably Transformers blowing, and when my ex asked what the flashes were, her dad Neil said the same thing. As far as we could tell, whatever was producing the flashes wasn't making any sound, but it's entirely possible that it was happening too far away for the sound to reach us. My ex's parents lived in a suburb not exactly close to our city on the US west coast, but close enough that there was always light pollution. There was no light pollution now, only the flashing green lights in the distance and the bright stars and the night sky. We assumed this meant the blackout was pretty widespread. My ex's parents both grew up in a small town, and they both agreed that they'd never seen a night sky as bright and full of stars as it was then. It wouldn't have been possible with a major city full of lights at just 20 miles away, so the power must have been out there too. I remember Neil pulling out three flashlights from one of the drawers in the kitchen, and Laurie, my ex's mom, lit a couple candles in the living room, one in the kitchen and one in the downstairs bathroom. Neil went out to the garage and came back with a battery-powered radio. He turned it on and fiddled with the dials looking for something to fill the silence. There was only static. He turned it to a local news station and left it on low volume so we could hear if anyone started to broadcast. It was kind of exciting in a way. You know that feeling of being in the dark when the power goes out? Unsure of why and unsure of when things will return to normal. Both my ex and I were supposed to work the next day, and we were giddy with the hope that we wouldn't have to go. Like kids watching the snowfall on a school night and hoping for a snow day. Plus... There was an added feeling of safety from knowing that there wasn't a storm outside causing the outage and threatening to blow a tree onto our house. Laurie brought out some board games, and we sat on the floor in the living room and played Scrabble. After a while, we heard the static on the radio clear up, and a voice began speaking softly. My ex was closest to it, so she went and turned up the volume. I checked my phone. It was still fully charged at that point, and saw that it was a little after 9.30pm. The voice on the radio was a woman's voice. This is a public service announcement. We are currently experiencing widespread power outages and public services are limited. Please remain indoors and we will update you when we have more information. The message played on repeat so we turned it back down. It was a little disconcerting, and we joked about how this was a horrible way to keep people feeling calm. We talked about how none of us had ever heard a public service message like that before during a power outage. The message continued to play in the background on low volume, until Neil got up and turned the radio off. We don't need to listen to that over and over again. We'll check it before bed and see if anything's changed, he said. And so we kept playing Scrabble. At about 11.30, we decided that we should probably go to bed. My ex and I weren't sure if we would have to work in the morning, and we thought that it would be best to be well rested just in case. Her parents had a guest room that we had occasionally stay in when we were house-sitting, 
and Lori invited us to sleep there for the night. It didn't sound like we were supposed to go out anyway. When we checked the radio one more time, the message remained the same, and we all made our way to our bedrooms to get some rest. I could still see the green flashes on the horizon outside of the bedroom window. I set an alarm on my phone for 7.15. I probably should have conserved the battery, but I didn't want to sleep through work if the power came back on. We woke up in the middle of the night to the sound of a booming voice coming from outside. Please remain indoors. We will update you when we have more information. It played on repeat and grew louder for a bit, before getting gradually softer and further away. I assume it was one of those trucks with a loudspeaker or something, probably driving through the neighborhood and broadcasting the message. But I didn't see anything outside. Only green flashes. The clock on my phone said it was 3.22am. At 7.15, my alarm went off. I got up and flipped the light switch in the guest room, but nothing happened. I looked out the window, but it was starting to get light, so I couldn't tell if any buildings outside of the neighborhood had power yet. It was comforting that we couldn't see any green flashes on the horizon in the morning light. My ex went to use the bathroom, and I went downstairs to turn on the radio. The message was the same. We are currently experiencing widespread power outages and public services are limited. Please remain indoors and we will update you when we have more information. This is a public service announcement. I went back upstairs and I was walking into the guest room right as my ex came out of the bathroom. No work today, I said, and threw myself onto the bed. I turned my phone off and she joined me and we were both fast asleep again pretty quickly. We kept the shades open. The daylight felt like safety and it was comforting. We woke up later to someone knocking on the bedroom door. Honey, are you awake in there? We heard in Lori's voice. My ex responded. Yeah, mom, we're in here. Okay, well, can you tell me if the curtains are open in there? My ex and I looked at each other. Yeah, mom, the curtains are open. Can you close them and come down and help your dad and I? I got up and opened the door. I was still waking up so my brain wasn't processing things quickly enough. What? I asked. Lori walked past me into the room with a roll of duct tape in her hand. She closed the blackout curtains and began taping the edges of the curtains to the wall. This is a very confusing sight to see 30 seconds after waking up. Please go downstairs and help Neil. He'll explain it, she said. We made our way downstairs. In the middle of the living room was a pile of blankets, sheets, and clothes. Neil was taping a thick comforter to the window in the kitchen. When he saw us, he said, Oh great, you're awake. I need you to take the clothes in that pile and shove them under the front door and the garage door. The radio was on. I could hear a new message playing. This is a public service announcement. There is no need for alarm. Please remain calm and stay indoors and close your windows and curtains. Try to limit how much air and light can enter your home. Lock as many windows, skylights, and gaps underneath the doors as you can. Fill your bathtub and as many containers as possible with tap water. We will update you when we have more information. 
We helped Neil and Laurie block as many openings to the outside as we could, while the message continued playing on the radio. My ex and Laurie worked on the upstairs and I helped Neil downstairs. We filled both bathtubs with water and filled every glass in the cupboard with tap water and left them out on the counter. Once again, we were in darkness, with only flashlights and candles. I turned on my phone to check for a service, but I didn't have any. My phone said it was a little past 11am. We took stock of all the food in the house. We figured we probably had enough food to eat comfortably for about 10 days. Maybe 20 if we were really rationed carefully. Neil didn't think it made sense to start rationing yet, and we decided we would start doing so after 3 days if things didn't change. So I guessed we were probably set for about 2 weeks. We all found it much harder to stay calm than we did the night before. The anxious energy in the house was palpable. The situation seemed a lot more harrowing now, and we didn't want to turn the radio off. So, the PSA played throughout the day in the background. We tried our best to play games or talk about work and act like everything was normal. Once or twice, we heard the booming voice again outside, probably from a truck with loudspeakers warning us to stay inside and cover the windows. Aside from that morning surprise though, nothing changed much throughout that day, until we went to bed. Except for the loudspeakers, it had been very quiet outside since the power went out. Late on Friday night or Saturday morning, I'm not sure exactly what time it was, we all woke up to an unsettling sound from outside. It sounded like it was way off in the distance, and right outside the house all at once. It was this deep, vibrating sound, somewhere between a loud hum and a steady monotone sound of a brass horn. It didn't fade in and out, it was just there, unavoidable and filling the space around us. All four of us came out of our bedrooms. We were all visibly shaken nobody dared to look outside to try to find the source of the sound. Neo tried to comfort us and said it probably wasn't anything to worry about, but he was obviously pretty spooked too. We decided to all go downstairs and sleep in the living room together, and when we got there, we found that the radio was no longer broadcasting any message. Neo replaced the batteries and turned it back on, but still nothing. The only reminder we had of the outside world was the unwelcome, monotone horn somewhere in the distance. One by one, we fell back asleep. I was the last one, I think. I had pretty bad anxiety, and this whole thing was getting weirder and weirder and harder to manage. Plus, I honestly don't know how anyone could sleep through Neo's snoring, but at least the snoring was something to listen to aside from the humming of the horn or the static from the radio. Eventually, I drifted away, but it was a restless sleep, and I definitely didn't get enough of it. I was the first one awake on Saturday. The clock on the wall said it was a little past 5am. The humming sound continued. I normally have coffee in the mornings, and this was my second morning in a row without it. So, I had a headache, but I definitely wasn't tired. I quickly looked through the cupboard hoping maybe Neil or Lori would have some canned cold brew coffee or something else with caffeine that wouldn't require electricity to make it, but there was nothing. 
I found some Tylenol in the medicine cabinets in the bathroom and I took it. Before scrolling through the radio frequencies, hoping to find some other station that was broadcasting. Nothing. Out of the corner of my eye, I saw a green flash. I looked around and saw that the tape on one of the living room curtains had come loose, so I went to stick it back to the wall. I don't know why, but I felt the urge to peek outside through the gap, and I did. What could it hurt? Nothing nearby looked out of the ordinary. Off in the distance, the green flashes continued on the horizon. I fastened the tape back to the wall and sat in silence reading the Scrabble rulebook until the others woke up. I don't know what that Saturday was like for you guys, if you remember it at all, but it was fairly uneventful for us, and it was kind of nice, honestly. We made ourselves a breakfast platter of sliced fruit and some cheese that was in the fridge, which we assessed to be unspoiled. We played some games, Scrabble for a while, and then we switched to Uno. And Lori let me look through the books in her room for something that I could read aside from the Scrabble rulebook. The horn never stopped, and nothing new came on the radio. I also don't recall hearing any loudspeakers all day. I think it kind of helped my anxiety that I had peeked out the window that morning. The green flashes were still eerie, but it was nice to know that the outside world still looked mostly normal, aside from the unrelenting sound of the horn. It highlighted that not much had changed about our situation, so it felt less urgent and dangerous. Even the humming of the horn was getting easier to ignore. I slept better that night. When we woke up Sunday and realized that the power was still out, we had to start thinking seriously about rationing our food. We agreed that we would try to stick to one meal a day. I decided it would be better to try to last as long as I could without eating. So, I didn't eat anything in the morning. Neo replaced the batteries in the radio and made sure that it was still dialed to the news station. And we again did our best to stay strong and stay calm. We played games. Lori tried to teach me how to meditate. We debated whether or not we would be rescued. And whether or not we were in a situation that required rescuing. I think we all had this sense that something was happening that was more than just a power outage but none of us knew what it could be. In the evening, the clock on the wall was the only way we could keep track of the time now, and we convinced Neil and Lori to play Cards Against Humanity. My ex and I had given it to them for Christmas a couple years ago, but they had never touched it, and we had found it in their hallway closet and begged them to play it with us. If there's one thing that's great for curing boredom, we promised them it's Cards Against Humanity. It had been a long time since we had that much fun, we were dying of laughter, especially listening to Neil and Lori read out the inappropriate card combinations. We opened a bottle of wine, and then a second bottle, and then a third. We were probably on our fourth or fifth game, when we heard a loud rumbling outside and the whole house started shaking. I don't know if you remember the earthquake, but if you do, then you understand the terror that we were about to experience. The ground below us felt like it was rolling. Things were falling off of shelves. The sheets and blankets started falling off the windows, and we all scrambled to put them back up. Somehow, that felt like the most important thing. I know they said to stand in a doorway or hide under a table during an earthquake, but instead, we all had this instinct to protect the windows. 
the only thing any of us knew about our situation was that we were supposed to keep the windows covered. As the earthquake subsided, we heard a siren blaring in the distance. Not like an ambulance. It sounded like an air raid siren or some kind of warning. I had never heard anything like it. The loud rumble of the earthquake was replaced again with the sound of the horn, but the horn was much louder than before, seemingly closer to us and more brassy, and it really was less like a hum and more like a horn now. As loud as the air raid sirens were, they couldn't drown out the horn. The static on the radio cleared up once again and we heard the voice. This time, it was not the woman's voice. It spoke in English, but I couldn't pin a gender to it. The voice had an odd, metallic echo to it, but it didn't sound like that was from radio interference or from any problems with the transmission. It was just the way the voice sounded. This is an emergency announcement. Please remain in your homes and do not go outside. Do not look outside. Find a central area in your home and do not leave it. Move away from all windows and doors and cover your eyes. It is very important that you do not stop listening to this broadcast. It repeated itself. This is an emergency announcement. We all rushed frantically towards the middle of the house near the staircase as the horn sound got louder still. The earthquake was over, but the house was still vibrating, maybe even rumbling, perhaps from the blaring sirens and the horn sound that was now roaring all around us. Do not go outside. Do not look outside. The voice was so unsettling. It is very important that you do not stop listening to this broadcast. And that's when I had a panic attack. My therapist says that I catastrophize things and assume the worst possible outcome. I was overwhelmed by the reality of everything we were instructed to do. Fill the bathtubs with water, cover the windows, shove clothes into any gaps, move to the center of the house and to, to cover our eyes. At that moment, it seemed obvious to me what was about to happen. We were going to die. This was a full-scale nuclear attack. All of it was too much, too much noise, too much pressure, too many things happening at once. I had to get out of there. I couldn't breathe. I was going to die on the floor in the middle of the suburbs, having seen only a glimpse of the outside world in three days. I was hardly thinking rationally. I decided to screw it, and I lunged toward the door. I couldn't stay there. My ex screamed at me in horror and tried to chase me. But Neil pulled her back. No, stay in the house. If we go outside, we die. I reached the door and I heard Neil scream. Don't look outside. I glanced back and saw all three of them turn their heads away from me and cover their eyes. I turned the handle, pulled it open, and threw myself outside. Their screaming disappeared behind me as I pulled the door shut. Assuming you're better at following instructions than I am, this is where my experience probably differs from yours, if you have any memory of this at all. The horn was much louder outside, probably a lot more intense than you remember it being, and so was the sound of the siren. But it was still more comforting that it was in the house with all that commotion, and the crisp, cold air was a relief. The sky was clear and the stars were shining brightly. I had never seen so many of them before, 
with the light pollution we usually get from the city. The green flashes also seemed brighter than before, and much closer now, but somehow they didn't interfere with the starlight at all. Even in the throes of a panic attack, it was a stunning sight and I stared in awe. I scanned the skies for any sign of nuclear Armageddon, but what I found instead will stick with me until I die. In the heavens above us was the most surreal and possibly large, solid black triangle-shaped object, darker than anything I had ever seen, slowly drifting across the night sky. I might not have even known that it was there if not for the fact that it blocked out the stars as it moved. It was the biggest object I had ever seen in my life, except for the earth itself. Bigger than any mountain I had ever seen, and more sprawling than any city I had ever known. It looked to be far up in the upper atmosphere, and it still occupied a good 30% of the night sky, so I know that it was many miles across. There was nothing about it that told me it should have been able to hang in the air the way that it did. No visible propulsion or rotors, aside from the fact that it was flying. As I watched the object slowly carve its path through the sea of stars, the horn sound faded to a hum again, and then drifted away to silence. The sirens also faded, until there was just serene calmness, and I realized that this enormous vessel was not making any noise whatsoever. It just silently glided through the night sky, moving east to west, towards the Pacific Ocean. It eventually had reached the western horizon and began to gradually fade behind the hills. As it moved, it revealed the stars that were hidden behind it a measurable frame. Mile by mile, it disappeared behind the earth until I watched the last of it vanish in an intense burst of green light at the horizon. All at once, in the dead quiet of night, the world lit up again. Every house and streetlight around me shined brightly, and most of these stars seemed to pop out of existence, snuffed away by the light pollution of the city. I heard a neighbor open their window, and some laughter emerged from their house. There was music somewhere in the distance. I stared at the western horizon for what felt like days, wondering if I had really seen what I thought that I had seen. It seemed impossible but the memory is burned into my brain. Eventually, I took a deep breath and turned around to walk back inside. My senses were flooded with the sound of the TV, some sitcom with a laugh track, and I made my way into the living room to see Lori Neal and my ex, all sitting on the couches watching a show. I sat with them. None of us said a word. When we left for home that night, my ex and I sat in silence for the entire car ride, and we went to bed without speaking a word to each other. The next day at work, everything seemed bizarrely normal, and nobody was in a rush to talk about the event of the past three days. I sat at my desk, did some menial tasks, and watched the clock tick away towards 5pm. I was dying to talk about what we all experienced, but nobody in the office brought it up, or even hinted at anything out of the ordinary. 
It wasn't until the day was almost over that I finally found myself in a conversation with a coworker. She asked me how my weekend was, and I laughed and told her that it was definitely memorable. And then I asked her how she was holding up after everything that had happened, and she was confused in a way that could not be possible for someone who had experienced even a fraction of what I experienced. It was only then that I realized that nobody else had any memory of what had happened. I'm yet to meet anyone who remembers the 2014 blackout, or the steady horn in the distance or even the earthquake, let alone the strange object blocking out the sky. If anyone out there knows what I'm talking about, I'm begging you to let me know. This event has changed my entire life and shattered my understanding of the universe around me, and I have nobody to share it with. Even if you didn't see the triangle craft stretching miles across the night sky and the darkest black that you could ever imagine, it would still be nice to know that somebody out there at least remembers the power outage. It's very isolating, feeling like this had been lost from our collective memory and wondering if my own recollections are the only remaining evidence of what happened over those three days. I've kept my mouth shut for a long time, fearing what my friends and family will think of me if I mentioned what happened that weekend. But it's very important now that I found out if anyone else remembers any of this. For seven years, I'd kept an eye on the night sky, and for most of that time, I never saw anything else out of the ordinary since that day. That is, until about six months ago, when I saw a black triangle blocking out the stars. It was much smaller than what I saw in 2014, probably only a few hundred feet across, but its shape was unmistakably the same. I've been seeing them more and more lately. Now, every night when I look up at the sky, usually long after everyone else has gone to bed, I swear that I can make out one or two smaller pitch black triangles, slowly and silently moving through the sky. If you go outside tonight and look up, you might be able to find one. They're hard to see, but look for stars that fade in and out of existence, and then you'll be able to make out the eyeline of a perfect triangle. Last night when I was looking for them, I think I began seeing green flashes again on the horizon. They are much dimmer than they were back then, but they are there. I think I haven't been getting much sleep lately, and they seem to be getting brighter as the night went on. Maybe my eyes were just adjusting to them better, since I was up all night watching the sky. I also swear that I heard the faint sound of a steady horn in the distance, but nobody is talking about it today. Maybe everyone was just asleep, or maybe I'm losing it. I can't say that my mental health has been great since 2014, so who knows. But I don't think that I'm losing it. I cannot but wonder if these things were also happening in the weeks and months or years leading up to November 13th, 2014, and none of us noticed it. But I notice it now, and I'm trying to be prepared for the worst. If you have any recollection of that weekend, and even if you don't, you should probably prepare yourself too. I have no idea what these things are in the sky now, or what that enormous triangular object was on that day but I'm sure that it was there, and I don't mean to alarm anyone, 
But whatever it is, I think it's coming back. When it does, please try to remember it this time. I live in a duplex. I think something is wrong with the family next door. Written by the Crooked Boy. The Calhouns moved in overnight. Our house, a duplex split right down the middle, was filled with muffled scrapes and groans as the picture-perfect family lugged in their furniture and settled down in the unit beside ours. There is a mom, slight and brunette, a father, strong and handsome, and an 11-year-old daughter who was just a little younger than me. I never actually saw the Calhouns until the very end. I only knew they were real because my parents said so. The day after they moved in, my mom went over with a casserole and came back with a funny look on her face. She told me that the mother was frosty, whatever that meant. My dad had no interest in befriending the husband, and I didn't think that I would find myself a friend in their daughter until I got the first note of my vent the very next night. That's how I became pen pals with a girl who wasn't allowed playdates. Hi, you want to be friends? The note in painstaking pencil on purple construction paper had scuffled into the air vent that hogged the corner of my room. It was a metal grate, about as big as a shoebox, set into the cream-colored molding. If you got down on all fours and peered in through the bars, you could see, past five feet of metal tunneling, into the room mirroring yours next door. And the lights were off in the other room and I saw nothing saved at the folded note, resting halfway between her room and mine. I popped off the vent and fished it out, reading the carefully plotted scrawl that asked me to be friends. I grabbed a pencil from my desk and replied, Yes, I'm Kayla. What's your name? I slid the note with my answer back through, replaced the vent and went to sleep. When I woke up, there was a reply. I'm Minnie. Don't tell your parents about me. I frowned, rereading the note. That was odd. I wonder what she meant by that. What do you mean? I slid the note back through and headed off to school. The crooked lady says I'm not allowed friends. Beneath Minnie's reply was a drawing of a stick woman, with a head of scribbled hair and a multitude of bent, jointed limbs. A spider thing. Looking at it made my skin crawl and my knees go weak. The crooked lady. I debated showing my parents but afraid that they would march me next door demanding answers, I didn't. Instead, I wrote back. Who is that? After I finished my homework, there was a new note, one that made my chest ache. I stared at the reply to my question, trying to make sense of it. There were two new words beneath the drawing. Looking at them made me feel dizzy, like the floor beneath my feet was a liquid slime. Shifting and swaying, the walls around me spinning and spiraling as I stared and stared. The two fresh words leapt off the page, 
invading my vision, burn themselves into my retinas, etching a series of lines and swirls on the back of my eyelids. The little girl named Minnie had answered in slanting letters. The string master. Days passed, a week, and then two. The weather shifted as fall snapped it and stole the green from the trees, sending them up in a blaze of color. The air went cold, wearing icy fangs that bit through flesh and bone. I didn't hear from Minnie during those strange, cold weeks. I would put notes in the vent and get nothing in return. Spare these strange noises which leached through on some nights. Muffled voices, tinny and tainted by the vent, funneled in, too faint to pick out words. If they were words at all, if I listened long enough, it sometimes sounded like a low, throaty chanting. Strange syllables intoned again and again, like nothing I had ever heard. I saw the mother out and about once or twice, taking out the trash and the husband on his way to work. I never saw Minnie. I didn't tell my parents about our exchange. I bottled it up, hoping the gnawing feeling in the pit of my stomach would go away. But it didn't. There was a tiny rat living in my tummy, nibbling away at me, trying to eat me from the inside out. It was named the String Master. We were eating roast beef for dinner. I hated roast beef. I pushed food around my place, nibbled at a bite and put it back, and looked up at my parents. What's a string master? I asked. My mom looked over at me, puzzled. My dad didn't raise his eyes from his newspaper, which snapped as he turned the page. It's a funny looking guitar, hon. He answered absently. My mother kept staring at me. Where'd you hear that, Kayla? I don't know. My mother frowned before drowning her confusion in a glass of red wine. What are the new neighbors like? I asked. The wife was frosty, my mom answered. I haven't met the husband yet. And their daughter. My mom's face, lights and pale beneath a head of blonde curls, nodded up as if she couldn't find the words. The daughter seems odd. She said finally. I looked up. You met Minnie. Mom frowned at me. Her name's Minnie. I thought about the note that I'd gotten. Don't tell your parents about me. And decided to lie. I don't know. I think so. I thought that. I heard her mom call her that once. Yes, well, my mother hopped. She just seems odd. I only saw her for a moment, a scabby little thing. I'm sure she's a perfectly sweet girl, um, but my mom trailed off and I thought I saw her shudder. I don't want you playing with her, my mom continued, especially not over there. Her mother was frosty. We finished dinner in silence. I washed up and fell into my pajamas. Ready for bed when I decided to check the post office in the corner of my room one last time. I didn't expect to find a new note. Resting halfway through the vent communicating between her room and mine. But that's exactly what I found. I unfolded it and read the invitation carefully. 
my heart thumping in my chest, my breath shallow and gluey in my lungs. Tea party. Tonight at bedtime, down the rabbit hole, through Minnie's Wonderland. I read the note again and again, wondering if I should accept the invitation, or crumple it up and forget about my friend next door. I sat on the edge of my bed, tormented by my indecision. After a moment and then two, I snatched my crucifix necklace on the nightstand and got down on my knees, wriggling my elbows and kneecaps in through the air vent that fed into Minnie's room. I don't know why I grabbed the necklace. I guess deep down I knew that I might need it. As I shuffled and warmed my way through the rabbit hole air vent, I realized I was never so grateful for anything as I was for that cold metal pendant dangling from my nag. The lightness of Christ guided me inch by inch, protecting me from the string master, whatever might lay beyond. I met the Calhouns for tea not much later. Minnie's bedroom was exactly like mine, and at the same time, it wasn't at all. The shape and size were the same, but that was as far as the similarity stretched. My wallpaper was pink. Hers was unpainted plaster. My bed was a princess canopy facing a pine-sized vanity mirror. Hers was a threadbare mattress shoved sloppily into the corner. A tangle of soiled blankets coiled atop it like a dead thing. I couldn't see much. The lights were off and the room was wrapped in shadow. A heavy gloom that seemed to weigh down the air. That made my shoulders stoop and my lungs feel full of lead. Minnie, I whispered, voice hoarse. She wasn't here. I was alone in the rotten bedroom that was supposed to be hers. The air tasted funny, stale and laced with rot, something foul. As I tried to remember how to breathe through my nose, I heard a creak from the hallway, a warped floorboard shifting underweight. I noticed the bedroom door standing open, and shivered at the darkness that seeped in from the hall. It looked like a mouth. Like a hungry mouth that wanted nothing more than to devour me, warm and screaming. I tensed. My lungs squeezed tight and snapped like rubber bands. My heart picked up the pace, pumping hot blood through my ears, hammering my ribcage hard enough to snap bone. A creak. I swallowed. My throat was dry like sandpaper. Creak. Closer now. Something was moving through the darkness of the hall, slithering toward me under the cold safety of shadow. Something that thrived in the darkness and was the source of all bumps in the night. Creak. I could feel the scream tickling its way up my throat, threatening to explode from my lips if... Kayla? A small shape appeared in the doorway. A raggedy doll of a girl who looked worn by a lifetime of torment. She was Minnie, a scabby thing my mom had said, which was right after all. She was small, undeferred, her yellow hair thin and greasy. She looked like nothing but wire hangers and skin beneath a frayed pink dress. Minnie, I asked just to be sure. I could see her nod at the darkness, 
Her face seemed to blur and shift in the low light. She shuffled into the room and smiled up at me. You're just in time, she said, her voice a hoarse whisper. I didn't have to ask why we were whispering. I knew why. Felt the answer clang through my body and decay like a bell struck once. We were whispering in case the string master was listening. Where are your parents? I asked. She tilted her head and frowned as if that was a strange question. They're here, she said. They're always here. The lights didn't work in her house and I didn't ask why. Minnie led me up the hall, down the stairs and into the dining room. Thick candles bubbling with melted wax jutted out at odd angles from the counters and shelves, throwing weak light over the dimly lit space. Shadows seemed to flicker and dance at the corners of my vision, seemed to watch us with too many eyes and fang-filled mouths. As we passed the kitchen, I saw empty cupboards, no silverware or food to be seen, and wrapping the walls of the dining room were untouched moving boxes, stacked like giant building blocks. It was as though no one actually lived here, let alone a busy family of three. The dining table, however, was set for a tea party. Sweet pastries, still warm and smelling of sugar, spiraled up and down in towers around a gleaming tea kettle and four rose-colored cups. What are those for? I asked, meeting the third and fourth cup. Minnie just looked at me and smiled, not answering as she pulled out a chair and claimed her throne. I felt my chest tingle with dread as I took the chair opposite of her. My stomach was nodding in on itself, forcing hot pile up my throat as I watched Minnie painstakingly pour tea for four. I should have left then. I should have kicked out my chair and ran, ran, never looking back. But I didn't. I couldn't. I wasn't in control of myself. Despite the warm, sour fear that forced itself up my nose and down my throat, flooding my insides like boiling water, I didn't move. I sat there and watched the crooked lady emerge. My parents want to meet you, Minnie said as she replaced the tea kettle. I swallowed the lump in my throat, wishing that I was in control of my limbs, but I was cemented to my chair, unable to move. Minnie smiled as if this fact amused her. My parents want to meet you, she said again. I tried to reply but found that I couldn't, but I opened my mouth anyway, hoping that I could tell her I wanted to leave. The fear, the raw, screaming terror was overwhelming. String master, I croaked. I don't know where it came from, only that it did. Minnie tilted her head and grimaced. Her lips drew back on tiny, malformed teeth and she hissed. As you wish. And then she broke apart. Minnie's face, the one that was so small and innocent, and belonged to my next door pen pal, twisted up as if torqued by an invisible hand, contorting and warping with bright agony. Her eyes dried out, shriveling up like slugs on hot concrete, and the upturned nose beneath them collapsed inward, leaving only a dark pit. 
A lone rattle issued from her throat as things began moving and writhing beneath her skin, slithering up and down her body like a hive of embedded insects. Bone crackled and snapped as the top of her head began to bulge, expanding and ballooning outward like an overfilled waterbed. A black insectile appendage, stick-like and covered with hair, snapped out of her mouth and groped at her expanding face with a gnarled, human-like hand. Her body, which had been so thin and fragile, shriveled and curled into the high-backed chair like tissue paper under flame. And then she simply tore, like the seams of a doll in the hands of a brat. Her body split apart with the sound of fabric ripping, misting the wall's table in my face in warm red. As the string master emerged in all its crooked horror, Minnie's body, which was nothing more than a shell, fell away like a rubbery, shedded skin, as a tall woman-like creature claimed her place. It was a bulging, fleshy thing, throbbing with horrible industry, a number of insectile appendages sprouting from the coarse black hair of its form. Its head, high-cheeked and undeniably feminine, wavered and blurred like a reflection on water. One second, it was Minnie's face. The next, it was a woman's who must have been her mother. A second later, it was a man's, firm and set in agony. The string master expanded, joints crackling, popping, rising into a tall beam that reached nearly to the ceiling. It towered above me as more faces cycled through its own. Dozens of men, women, and children I didn't recognize. Faces drawn in silent agony, forever imprisoned in the thing called the Stringmaster. I didn't scream until the pounding on the front door, and voices, voices I knew. My parents were at the door, banging, shouting my name. They must have found my room empty, found the vent cover astray, and the tunnel into this nightmare. As the front door thudded in its frame, I found my voice and screamed. God, how I screamed. Minnie's tea party happened years ago, but I remember the next few moments in startling clarity. It's a sepia tone to film reel that's branded itself onto the pink folds of my mind. As my parents banged and screamed, the string master shrank with impossible speed folding in on itself while simultaneously expanding outward. Its fleshy folds found two empty seats and bubbled up into familiar forms. It was as though a man and woman were growing out of the upholstery on these seats flanking mine, expanding up and out like blow-up dolls pumped with air. I saw their flesh turn pink and warm with life, saw them blink awake in skin and clothes that was no longer theirs. And then the front door was banging open, forced wide by the spirit key my parents still had, and they were rushing in, yelling, and then quieting as they saw the Calhouns and their daughter at the table set for tea. The string master was simulating normalcy, waiting for my parents to move closer, closer, waiting to suck us all into a very dark place. All I could do was scream and scream. As my parents stepped up to the table, Mrs. Calhoun split apart as if unzipped, a dozen hairy tentacles erupting from her broken form. The insectile arms zipped around my mother and snapped her in before she had time to scream. 
sucking her down into a mass of liquid flash that had replaced Mrs. Calhoun in her chair. I saw my mother melt like wax in the sun, her skin bubbling and blistering as she was assimilated into the stream master. Just another face for her to wear. At the same instant, hundreds of limbs exploded out of Mr. Calhoun and Minnie, whooping around the room like a tornado of flash and angry cyclone of meat that sucked in my father and me and pulled us down. Down into a darkness where the only light was cold and gray, and it made me wish for death. I floated through an ocean of a dark slime and a million others that floated with me. There were too many bodies to count. Broken, limp shapes drifting along soundlessly. I was reminded of ragdolls floating downstream. I looked around, trying to find my parents. Trying to. I couldn't breathe. My lungs were collapsing, straining for oxygen. I saw a distant bead of light. Gray, flickering. A life light belonging to something ancient and awful. And I kicked toward it. Desperate for that awful familiarity that light provided. But it was far, far, so very close. I was on top of the light. It floated before me, a bowling ball of cold gray illumination pulsing out through the sea of slime. I tried to touch it, but it burned with an impossible cold. I jerked my hand away and saw a blister forming on the skin. I needed air. My chest was crumpling. It was full of bright pain and I needed. Something silver drifted by like a small, insignificant fish. Something familiar. I reached out and I snatched it out of the empty space. It was my crucifix, glinting with warmth, with safety. I knew what I had to do, but it was too late. Darkness flooded my vision, swallowing it into a pinprick, swallowing me in the numb blanket of death. Feeling left my limbs, leaving me cold and dead, leaving me lifeless and empty. A false skin that the string master would wear to take others. I couldn't let that happen. I couldn't. And as my world went dark, I gripped the crucifix and stabbed. Crack. The gray ball of light erupted into a million screams, a cacophony of pain from the mouths of countless souls. The sea of slime withdrew, flying away from me, leaving me tumbling through air but I could breathe. God, how I could breathe. And I stuffed air into my lungs and cried. Even though it tasted like death and rot and corruption, I cried because I could breathe. And then I was back in the duplex, and I was covered in everything, drenched in it, and so were the walls. They were painted in red slime and flesh and bone from the exploded string master that I had killed with a two-inch cross. My parents were on the floor, a loose pile of limbs, eyes bleary and gasping for air, but alive. The others weren't so lucky. Minnie Calhoun and her mom and dad, whose names I never knew, were released to somewhere not of this world. At least that's what I like to think. I don't know what happened to them, or the others, when I punctured that dreadful life ball with my crucifix. All I know is that I still dream of that place, that strange ocean of slime, 
that belonged to the thing they called the Stringmaster, the one with all the bodies. I survived the back rooms. I've been looking to go back ever since. Written by Leo of Alexandria. I'm addicted to liminal spaces. You can find plenty of videos with examples across YouTube. Before I know what liminal meant, I was enthralled with the idea. To put it as simply as I can, the definition of liminal describes the initial or transitional stage of a process. It is also the boundary of a threshold. Look up some liminal spaces on Google. It'll just be easier once you have an idea what this looks like. Go ahead. I'll wait. Do you have a better idea of what I mean now? I guess I identify most with the stillness and strangeness of these places. There's usually no exit you can see. They're empty, and most have an overwhelming nostalgic feel. It's like we have been to these places before. Seeing a living room with no furniture... It's an old 80s-style green carpet. It speaks to some of us. I'm sure most had a friend's place that looked like this. Or maybe it was your own house. When you image search liminal spaces, there are a lot of hallways that pop up. I'm sure not many of us had hallways in our home. But you must have been to a hotel or two, right? It's familiar, but eerie. It's the best example of liminal. It's a transition. A hallway, it takes you somewhere. But when you can see the exit immediately, it is sometimes heart-pounding. There is something about the fear of these places that appeals to me. Don't get me wrong. I love the nostalgia. But fear is what drives me. Fear keeps you alive. The deeper that I dove into liminal spaces, the deeper down the rabbit hole I got. I live here now. I seek it. I seek what you are too afraid to find. I've been in the back rooms and survived. My first time, I didn't even know what was happening. I had no idea that I was there. After I realized what happened to me, and how fortunate I was, I was addicted. You think it's hard to noclip back to reality. Try doing it dozens of times. This is the first time it happened to me. Three years ago, I was a deputy sheriff for one of the larger cities in the U.S., at the time, I was assigned to the electronic monitoring unit. We installed and monitored tethers or ankle bracelets. Each officer had a caseload of 30 to 40. 
if the offender was fortunate enough to receive a tether as a part of their bond condition, then we would enforce the rules associated with said tether. Usually, it went well, with most obeying their court-ordered curfews or house arrest rules. Some men and women were assigned alcohol tethers. It's like a handheld preliminary breath test, a PBT, which they have to blow into five times a day to prove they're not imbibing alcohol, of course. These are mainly given out for drunk driving type of offenses. I'm sure you could figure that part out. I was sitting at my desk, monitoring my caseload and doing paperwork, whatever encompasses my day-to-day -day work life. A partner of mine, C, came up to me, dropping another file on my desk. What's this? I said. Name's not important. She's missed several blows. Can't get a hold of her. I have a couple locations that she might be at. You want to go look for her with me? He said. This is another part of our job. One that is always exciting. When someone tries to cut their device off, or doesn't fulfill the responsibilities imposed on them by the court, we go look for the offender. We call them absconders. They are now violating their bond conditions, and we have to find them. Being that alcohol tethers don't have a GPS element to them, we have some work to put in to find them. As mentioned, the offender that he was looking at had not taken an alcohol test in a while. He made some calls, determining what the last location she was at, and we started there. And to set the scene, the subject was at a location in southwest Detroit, not a great area. It was about 8 o'clock at night in the late fall, which meant it was cold and dark. Tough conditions to start searching for someone. Pulling up to the possible last known location, we were looking at a house that looked out of place for the area. Southwest Detroit is known to have one-bedroom ranch-style houses. This residence looked like something out of Hill House. It was well-kept. Maybe a three-bedroom, three-bath home. The lawn was beautiful. The lanterns outside were pretty but felt foreboding. As soon as we had approached the front door, I had a bad feeling. I posted out at the corner of the house and my partner C went to the front door. After knocking on the door and announcing ourselves as a part of the sheriff department, it slowly opened. A lady slowly peeked her head out. Strangely enough, she focused her gaze on me, not my partner right in front of the door. I'll never forget her face. It was human, make no mistake about that but it looked like papier-mâché, with a long scraggly wig on top. I honestly couldn't tell if she was black, white, Asian, or otherwise. Her skin had a glisten to it, but the color was off-puttingly gray. 
My partner continued with the mission. Ma'am, we're with the sheriff department. Is Camille here? She finally moved her gaze from me to my partner. Her dead black eyes stared at C for a moment before she finally spoke. Camille, yes, yes, she is here. My partner looked at me with a, what the heck are we getting ourselves into kind of luck. Okay, great. So can we come in and talk to her? C asked. Without technically giving consent, the supposed homeowner turned around and waved us inside. I made my way inside behind my partner. While C talked to the strange woman, I immediately noticed a ledger book on an older looking desk right in front of the door. It had several entries from what appeared to be caretakers. The person signed their name when they arrived, when they departed and a summary of what they did. As I suspected, these people were caretakers of sorts. This lady obviously could not take care of herself and needed some in-home nurse help. I quietly tapped my partner on the shoulder, showing him the book. The name of the person we were looking for was in the book several times, although she had not signed in on the day that we were here. Not quite sure what our next move was, we talked about searching this place. At this moment, I felt a bump on my leg. While we were talking, we both seemed to forget the lady that we were talking to. Looking down, I jumped back a bit, seeing the strange woman on all fours at my feet. She slowly looked up at me. Camille, is all she said, and that is all she would say, getting louder and louder. Camille, Camille, Camille. She was almost screaming. She scooted around on her butt, using her arms to move her body around the floor. Now we were in real disbelief. Okay, man, let's just clear this house and if we find her, we find her, C said. We both knew this situation was off, but started searching the house. The entire time, this woman was yelling for Camille, never once getting back to her feet, just kind of following us around on the ground. The time must have been around 9 o'clock at night, and it was a dark outside. The inside of the home had one light on. There were no TVs or any electronics of any kind. The house had a strange feeling to it. The layout of this older style home had about four bedrooms and two floors. Every time I left a room... I swear I was in a part of the house that I had just not been. I would enter a hallway and seemingly be in another part of the house, like I had entered a dimensional gap or something. The woman would sometimes be right behind me, crawling around on the floor without making a sound. I was starting to question how all of this was possible. At one point, we both entered the upstairs, which looked to be a regular upstairs, with bedrooms or maybe a bathroom at the top of the stairs. As we opened the door initially, 
but it wouldn't budge. It appeared that it had been sealed shut somehow, like it had been painted over and over and the paint had dried in the seams of the door. After putting in a little extra effort, the door opened, revealing an attic, not bedrooms. If you remember paranormal activity when the guy finds a picture of his wife as a child in the insulation, well that's what it looked like. There was nothing but storage space, insulation, and an older style light bulb with a string hanging from it. The lady, she was just sitting at the bottom of the stairs watching us, occasionally yelling for Camille. After what seemed like an hour of searching this house repeatedly, going into rooms, I swear that I had just left. We finally called it, and we cleared the property. As we drove off, that woman was now standing right out in front of the door, staring at us as we left. According to when we called dispatch, and when we cleared, we were only there for 20 minutes, but it felt like we were there for well over an hour or two. I don't know what was more unsettling. The fact that it was late at night. The lady yelling Camille's name and scooting around on the ground on her hands and knees. Her quietly showing up behind me when I hadn't heard her move at all. Or the fact that she was standing at the door, just staring at us as we left. We have not returned back to this house. We didn't tell anyone the true story of what had happened. It wasn't until much later that I realized I was in some form of the back rooms. My partner too, I imagine. It's a miracle that we both survived. At one point, I opened a bedroom door and I was outside. Behind me, my partner had bumped into me. We both reached for our weapons, thankfully seeing that the threat was only each other. I already searched out there, he said. I was confused, but I just let it go. I couldn't understand what we were doing here. That started my fascination of the liminal world. I began actively looking for this world again. I found it plenty of times. I quit my job with the sheriff's department. I now traverse the ethereal plane known as the backrooms. I've conquered the main levels, even finding some of the bi-levels. I've traded and I met some other great explorers. I can't admit this to anyone. But I've been trying to find that original house that led to my first backroom experience. I have not found it, but I know it's out there. I'll travel for the rest of my life until I see it again. In this world, or the next. I hope you all enjoyed this week's episode. Wherever you may be in the world... Thank you for listening, and I hope that you stay safe and sound. 
and as always, stay creepy.